0: This is Evermore Poe, The Turbulent Youth of Edgar Allan Poe. Chapter 45 I cared for the girl, too, John muttered the day Juliet left. He had come to console Eddie, who had just returned from saying goodbye at the docks, a kind of olive branch to repair what might be left of the would-be father-son relationship after their recent argument. I was the one to arrange Juliet live with us. I had hoped she might have an easier life. You have me wrong, Eddie. I am a good man under me. The girl was protected. But now well, Godspeed to her. John's words haunted Eddie as he sat in the room. If only he had listened to his pa, if he hadn't stopped showing up to work at Ellison Allen, he would have been the first to see Covey's offer letter. He could have destroyed it there and then. But he hadn't come in. He hadn't found the letter first, and now Because of him, a series of horrible missteps brought Eddie to this regretful, guilt-ridden reality. A squawking came from outside. Eddie walked to the window to investigate. That's strange, he said, looking out of the massive oak tree in the yard. Its winter branches had been barren for weeks, reminding Eddie of a skeletal hand rising far into the air. But now... Against an overcast, leaden sky, the dark branches suddenly appeared to be ripe with swollen leaves. Eddie heard the squawk again, and this time he saw the movement. They weren't leaves at all, but a conspiracy of crows, a dozen or more, crowding its branches. Eddie contemplated this dark scene. While downstairs, Nancy played yet another sorrowful melody on her spinet. Lately, she only played sad songs. Eddie took one last look at the foul scene outside his window and went to check on Francis. Once again, she was silently staring out her window. It was all she did these days. Meantime, Eddie wandered the halls. John was nowhere to be found. Nancy played on. Juliet had been gone for a fortnight, and her replacement, ton didn't say much. Without Juliet, the house on Tobacco Alley went from being solemn to downright funereal. Eddie longed for the late-night stories by the fireside. In consolation, he sat in his room and did the one thing remaining that made him happy at all. He wrote with reckless abandon. He tapped into his feelings, writing of love, desolation, ghosts, and buried treasure. He wrote of revenge and murder and bloodshed that he hoped to one day spin into gold. By now, he had had several poems about beautiful women and unrequited love. To date, Jane Stannard had inspired most of them. But in recent days, more of the poems were about his childhood and innocence with Juliet playing on haystacks, built up as castles, and ponds masquerading as the sea. Eddie's vivid imagination got him through these dreary days, a necessary medicine to keep from falling into all-out madness. Late at night, he would focus on the exotic beauty of Juliet while drifting off to sleep with a smile on his face. But sometimes, even the image of Juliet's beautiful face, the sweetest memory of a first kiss or their childhood, couldn't save Eddie from the worst of his nightmares. Waves crashed. Seagulls squawked. It was too foggy to see anything besides the wooden railing jutting out of the gloom. The unmistakable creak of a great ship's bones haunted the air, but otherwise all was quiet and still. There was no other soul on board. The ocean swelled, sea air sprayed his face. Grabbing hold of the rail, Eddie made his way down what he thought was the port side of the ship Two steps later, he noticed the vessel listing, and he knew he was aboard a sinking ship. Hello, he called out to anyone. There was no answer. Is anyone there? He strained to find another vessel on the misty horizon, a lifeboat or a neighboring ship, anyone in the water, but there was nothing. The deck creaked once more, the boat listed further. He looked down at his black boots being splashed with wave after wave as the ocean began to claim the deck. It wouldn't be long now. Despite this dismal landscape, Eddie felt no panic, only a serene sadness and an acceptance of his fate. He was strangely at peace with the tilting deck, waiting for the end to arrive. Once more, Eddie woke up in his own bed, in his own room, in the house on Tobacco Alley, It had been just another nightmare, and yet he knew they were happening much more often. Outside, it was another overcast day. He tried to concentrate on the gray clouds, hoping they might send him back into the dense fog of his dream that lingered in his half-slumber. And while he did not succeed, he began to recollect some of the details. Those boots, Eddie knew they were not his. He remembered a skirt and an apron, Eddie didn't have to be fully awake to realize he wasn't dreaming of himself. He tried to recall more details before they slipped away. The shirt faded and yellow, the boots well-worn, a single wet ringlet of Juliet's long chestnut hair. "'What does it mean?' Eddie wondered. "'Is she all right? Was Cyrus' company in danger?' Eddie reeled in agony, knowing it would take weeks before the first letters arrived from Africa, and yet he couldn't shake the feeling that what he had experienced wasn't a dream at all, but a premonition. He convinced himself that brokering Juliet's departure was the right thing to do, even if blackmailing his foster father wasn't. Ironically, it was from John Allen that Eddie had learned how to drive a hard bargain. Hadn't Pa always said there was a cost to doing business? only Eddie never thought that cost would be his relationship with the man. Despite their ceasefire, a silent storm raged between the two Allen men weeks after their epic blowout, but underneath it all, the damage was done. For the sake of appearances, each played the gentleman, addressing one another with a formal, if forced, cordiality that always had a double meaning. On the night of January 19th, Eddie's 15th birthday, they celebrated with a tipsy parson cake— The aptly named alcohol-soaked dessert would leave Ma and Nancy with a case of the evening giggles and the morning groans. John Allen was still unaffected on his third slice. "'Here, Eddie, open this one,' Nancy had said, handing him the final birthday present. Eddie was excited to receive a new shirt, his first shaving kit, and a copy of a book by Lord Byron. He read the spine aloud, "'Darkness and Other Poems.' "'Oh, thank you, Ma. That one's from your pa, dear.' She replied. Oh, uh, thank you, Pa. I really appreciate it. Of course, me boy, he said. I thought you might. Hope you don't mind that I looked inside. There is a poem in there called Cain, I believe. It recounts the biblical tale of family betrayal. He paused before adding, and its consequence. Heavens, John, Francis piped in. That doesn't sound very entertaining. Nonsense, Fanny, John said, piercing Eddie with his stare. It's just an allegory. It's just fiction. Isn't that right, son? Evermore Poe is the historical account of a teenaged Edgar Allan Poe. If you'd like to learn more about Eddie's devolution to become the master of the macabre, please don't forget to follow and share this podcast. Evermore Poe was researched, written, produced and edited by yours truly, journalist Chris Kosach. I began my research more than a decade ago using vetted journalistic methods with corroborated fact-checking from respected sources including the Library of Congress, periodicals obtained from multiple Poe museums, sources scholars and the National Archives, among other collections, strung together in a narrative style. In other words, my story is mostly true. Our music today is from Esther Abrami. It should be noted that some of the characters in Evermore Poe are composites of real people, including servants and slaves who lived in the Allen home at the time of our story. Please note, while Evermore Poe is based on fact, it should not be confused with the historic record. For that, I hope you will go down your own rabbit hole to research one of the most thrilling American authors of all time. Our story continues again next time on Evermore Poe. Until then, I'm Chris Kosach. Thank you for listening.